to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. So on Wednesday, I helped my brother-in-law Josh, the drummer here, disassemble, carry, and reassemble a Murphy bed. Now, I say I helped because without Josh, there's no way I could have done it on my own. He was the brains and the brawn. I was the semi-helpful assistant and second pair of hands. I was the Vanna White to his Pat Sajak. I was the Heidi to his Tim the Toolman Taylor, or really Tim to his Al, if we're honest about that old show. Or if we want a more recent example, I was a briefcase girl to his Howie Mandel on Dealer New Day. Occasionally, I have illusions of handiness and manliness, but I broke a nail within the first 10 minutes, no lie. Um, So my illusions faded very quickly. Now, after we disassembled this Murphy bed and taken it upstairs, we were reassembling it when I realized we were missing some of the parts. So I helpfully trooped back to the garage as Josh did the real work of assembling things and attempted to retrieve said remaining parts. Now, this service was well within my skill set. Or so I like to lead others to believe. I found the screws and the clips and the all-important bracket, except there were two brackets and not one. Without that bracket, I'm not sure the whole thing would function at all. So after scouring the garage for about 10 seconds, I headed back upstairs to drop off my findings. I was only slightly discouraged that I couldn't locate the last bracket. Why, you ask? Because I am a terrible finder and apparently a terrible Hufflepuff, according to the Very Potter musical. I rarely find what I'm looking for, even when someone else joins the search and finds it almost immediately. Megan has done this numerous times, and it's a bit demoralizing to someone like me. So I left the parts with Josh, and I searched the garage again, sure that I just overlooked this bracket. Alas, after even more time scouring the garage, it was not to be found. Perhaps the finding fairies had taken it and hidden it away with all the other things I'd misplaced and forgotten. So I went back upstairs and confessed to Josh my failure. Now Josh, a good man that he is, was sympathetic to my plight. He didn't have the bracket, but he was confident in his finding abilities. He asked if I could screw in a couple of screws. I answered that I probably could, but I made no real promises. So as he headed out of the room, I started to employ my questionable screwdriver skills. Quickly, Josh returned. It seems like it had only been seconds, but that must be what it's like to be a great finder, something I'll probably just never understand. Turns out it was only seconds because Josh had discovered the bracket in his pocket after he'd shifted his keys over, and this made me feel much, much better. (laughs) Now, this was just my latest episode of losing and searching frantically for things. At least the latest with a story to go with it. I'm sure I asked Megan where my wallet, watch, keys, water bottle, phone, and children were many times since Wednesday. I misplace things constantly. Some of the time I find my sunglasses on my head or hanging from my clothes somewhere after a frantic search. Now, I'm aware of this weakness, and I have planned to deal with it. I have designated places where I leave my keys and wallet. But somehow this doesn't stop me from losing things. Normally, they turn up in my pants or jacket pocket, but sometimes I just put them in random places. They end up under couches or somewhere in the car. And some of the time, this is no big deal. I calmly search, 
and effortlessly find my missing essentials and continue my life. Now, I should probably say on rare occasions, that's what happens. Normally, I'm running late and I'm trying to head out the door. So I search and I express my displeasure with myself verbally in a variety of colorful ways. And I'm already late and it just makes things worse. Maybe I find my keys or maybe I just take Megan's instead, vowing that I would never lose her keys. No, never. Though my track record begs to differ. Now, have you been there before, frantically searching for your keys or another last item, becoming more and more frustrated by the search, the lost item, the interruption to your otherwise controlled and perfectly smooth day? Maybe it's not losing your keys. Maybe it's that person who just stopped by your cubicle or your house or had the audacity to text you. And they know just what to say to drive you crazy, to derail your productivity and ruin your good mood. Maybe it's the clothes that used to fit perfectly. And in spite of your never-changing weight and body, suddenly they just don't fit the way they used to. It's baggy in the right, wrong places and tight in others. I'm not even sure how that's possible. It's probably the cheap laundry detergent you bought at McGarry's. That's how. Now, I don't know what it is, but I'm pretty confident that there's something that annoys you in your day today life. That thing that frustrates you, that really gets your goat. And I've wanted to slip that phrase in like a message for years, so high five self. Yes. <laughs> and in these moments of stress and irritation, we have an amazing opportunity to experience the truth and grace of God. No, really. Seriously. That's what we're talking about. We like to pretend that we have everything together, that life is smooth sailing, but every day something throws off your groove like Cusco. And the cracks start to show. And the real person inside peeks through. Now, author Tish Warren calls these apocalypses, both because of the disaster that occurs internally and externally in these moments. I know for me it's a bit of an apocalypse. Um, but also because of their revealing nature in our lives. She says this, Apocalypse literally means an unveiling or uncovering. In my anger, grumbling, self-berating, cursing, doubt, and despair... I glimpsed for a few moments how tightly I cling to control and how little control I actually have. And in the absence of control, feeling stuck and stressed, those parts of me that I prefer to keep hidden were momentarily unveiled. But in even these moments, these small apocalypses can be opportunities for spiritual formation, for becoming more and more like Jesus. Because Jesus can meet us in our frustration and brokenness. And this is what we're talking about. It's part of what we're talking about in our series, Liturgy of the Ordinary. How can the moments of a normal day, the day-to-day -day life we actually live, help us become more like Jesus? We often feel like it's the big moments that shape who we are, but it's really the small decisions we make every day that determine our future. And with God's help, we can practice his presence in these ordinary moments, from waking up to sitting in traffic to drinking tea to losing keys. God is with us, and he wants to be involved in all aspects of our lives, even in the small annoyances and aggravations of our days. So the question is, how can we let these frustrations become holy moments? How can we meet Jesus in our daily frustrations? Now, I don't know how your days go, but mine are mostly stress-free. They move along well, no issues, smooth sailing. I've got this life, yeah until all of a sudden I don't. Something is missing, I'm late, I'm frustrated and unbalanced, 
and then broken, sinful aspects of Ryan pop right out. Those weaknesses I try to hide or cover over or manage become obvious. And when I can't find my keys and I'm running behind or stressed, my ability to love others and think of others as more important than myself plummets. I pound my leg with my fist. I snap at my wife. I'm sarcastic and short with my boys. I shut the door as forcefully as possible. I mutter under my breath. Occasionally, I don't even mutter. Lately, the thing that's been driving me crazy is the hatch door on my hatchback. It doesn't open as much or as easily as it should, and it often descends rapidly onto my head as I'm getting groceries or the stroller out of the back. And I'll admit, it's probably mostly user error, but when that hatch cracks my noggin, I want to rip it off the hinges. I've occasionally tried, have yet to succeed. My superhuman strength is not developed yet. Um, so I punch it, or I curse, or I slam it to get back at it for the pain that it's caused me. And it's like it didn't even notice. It's right back bonking me on the head the next time. I always seem to forget that it's going to happen until it delightedly laughs as it descends on my unsuspecting crown. At least that's what I imagine is happening as I curse at it after it hits me again. And when one small frustration happens, the hatch door, the lost keys, the unexpected interruption, they seem to like pile on. And I take it personally. And it's like someone is out to get me. Now, before we get too carried away, let's uh, be honest about reality, right? Uh, my challenges, and your challenges probably, are minor compared to the actual suffering in the world, right? My frustrations and small annoyances, which mount and can feel overwhelming at times, are mostly first world problems. Um, oh, you can't find the keys to your car that 91% of the world doesn't even have? That's tough, buddy. Tough. I don't know how you live. But that's what my real day is like, right? My ordinary life right here in this moment, in my frustration and annoyance, this is what I deal with. And God is present and waiting to meet me and form me into the likeness of his son, even in that frustration. And if we don't learn to meet God in the small moments of the day, when the seemingly big ones come, we're really going to be in trouble. Now, I know the truth is no one's really out to get me. Um, many of my frustrations I bring on myself. But these moments tell the truth of who I am and give me a chance to experience God's grace if I pay attention. Warren says it this way. Underneath these overreactions and aggravations lie true fears. My lost keys reveal my anxiety that I won't be able to do what I need to take care of myself and those around me. They hit on my fear of failure and incompetency. Worries about money, my idolatry of ease, my false help in comfort and convenience. I just want things to run smoothly. It is a moment of revelation revealing the lostness inside me and my misplaced reliance. When everything is going well, I look like I have it all together. A smooth life led by a smooth operator. But when my plans are derailed, I'm running late, I've lost something again, it reveals the truth, that I'm broken and need Jesus desperately. I am grace-needy and grace-hungry. And the truth is, that's just good theology. It's called the doctrine of depravity. Author and pastor John Ortberg likes to say it this way, everybody's weird. I'm messy, you're messy, and when we interact with each other, we get that mess on each other. The Bible says it this way, 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there's no doubt that this is true. I see the impact all around me in the world, and I encounter it every day in my own heart. But even though it's true, I often like to pretend that it's really not that bad, actually. Um, So what are the steps of joining me in this perspective that my brokenness isn't a big deal? Number one, always compare yourself to someone you think is worse than you. Man, their sins are terrible. Compared to them, I'm a saint. Number two, excuse or overlook your shortcomings. Give yourself a break while not really giving others to anyone else. It was just a bad day. I don't really have a problem. It was really all the circumstances and the actions of others that led me to do that thing that I shouldn't have done. That's not a fair representation of who I am. Have you ever thought those things? But the moments in our day when our frustration and annoyance and stress get the best of us reveal that maybe we're not doing quite as well as we like to think and we'd like others to think. It removes our illusions if we take a moment to notice it. And the truth is we are far from perfect and we desperately need Jesus. Now the Apostle Paul writes this letter to his protege Timothy. And in the first few paragraphs, he describes himself as the chief of all sinners, the worst of the bunch. And I've always struggled with this passage, probably because I struggle with comparisons. Surely there must be a worse sinner than Paul. He wrote half of the New Testament. By the time he's writing to Timothy, he's been a follower of Jesus for years. Why does he still think of himself in this way? He has a new identity in Christ. He's chosen. He's adopted. He's beloved. And I've always responded poorly to a focus on our sinfulness as opposed to the incredible grace and love of God. And I think this is absolutely the best way to view things and to present things. But Paul doesn't focus on that here. Instead, he says he's the chief of all sinners. And in some ways, in context of Paul's life, I can understand why he might say that. In fact, a couple of sentences before, he refers to himself this way, and he tells the truth about his past. I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, he says. And he was. Paul knows the depths of the sin he's committed, and he has no illusions about his need for Jesus. And sometimes, probably a lot of times actually, I need to remember this. Now, I'm not a former persecutor or murderer, but when I'm honest about my brokenness, when I have the moments where I see my sin clearly, I need to turn to God and agree with Paul that I need Jesus badly and I am a beggar at the foot of his cross. When I don't view my brokenness accurately, my gratitude to God is minimized along with my sinfulness. And Jesus told a parable about this very thing. At a dinner when a woman of ill repute interrupts the public gathering by anointing Jesus' feet with perfume, the host, Simon, was appalled. Dave talked about this story last week. So Jesus gave him an illustration. He said this, A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to another. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Obviously, that's the point. Then he turned to the woman, orienting Simon so that he would see the woman he was looking down on and spoke to Simon and said, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your, your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. When I don't see my brokenness accurately, I minimize the grace that Jesus has given me. My gratitude is not as great as it should be. And Jesus indicates that my love of others is smaller as well. This is why moments of disappointment, annoyance, and frustration can be moments of great importance. It's not who I, or I'm not who I'd like to be. I have trouble thinking of others before myself, and especially thinking of them as better than myself. I talk too much, and I listen too little. My internal world is a mess, and these moments allow some of that mess to seep out. But there's good news. Great news, actually. Jesus didn't come to help people who don't need any help. He came from real people who are aware that they aren't the best thing since sliced bread. In fact, they see their brokenness clearly and so embrace the one who puts us back together again with great joy and love. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is about one such man who saw his brokenness clearly and not only responded to Jesus' call but introduced others to the one who gave him the love and the grace he so desperately longed for. His name was Matthew, and he was a hated part of the Roman oppression of the Jews in the first century, collecting taxes for the empire and skimming off the top for himself to the detriment of his fellow countrymen. But then he met Jesus. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call those, not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. So a Jewish teacher offers a tax collector a chance at a new life, one that doesn't come with the shame and guilt of siding with the oppressors and extorting his own people, and he jumps at the chance. And Matthew was so impacted that he wanted to introduce all his friends to the Jesus who had so changed his life. So Jesus ate and spent time with many that his society looked down upon. And this is how he got the reputation for being a friend of sinners. And that's a good thing, too, because that means he can be my friend and he can be your friend. But the religious elite at the time didn't see their sin clearly. They weren't like those other sinners. But Jesus' grace is only accessible to those who want it, those who recognize their need for him. Jesus says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. When I see my brokenness, when I admit the truth about my sin, I can turn to Jesus and walk into his grace again and again. And it's not just grace for that moment. Jesus invites us into a new life. 
and tells us that we are no longer defined by our brokenness and lostness, but by him who binds our wounds, who makes our brokenness beautiful, and finds us when we're wandering into death and darkness and brings us into his marvelous light. The Bible gives us these promises. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new one has begun. And he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. With Jesus' help, we can begin to face life in a new way. We can begin to find grace in the small moments of frustration and begin to experience love, peace, and contentment in our present circumstances. Without him, contentment is far away. But Paul tells us that the peace in the moment and the contentment in all circumstances is a mark of those who follow Jesus. He says it this way. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. With God's help, with the empowering of the Holy Spirit, Paul is able to be content and experience peace even in the worst situations. And Paul certainly experienced some crazy situations. Perhaps some of this craziness helped him into someone who knew how to be content with Jesus' help. Stoned imprisoned, beaten, shipwrecked. And I've never experienced that. But if I can't be content in my everyday circumstances, in my small frustrations, I can't imagine I'm suddenly going to figure it out when I face the more challenging ones. I have to live life today, now. And now is the time to be content and to experience the peace that passes all understanding. Now, I've certainly been through bigger struggles than losing keys. And I know the truth that God has been there in those moments, that he's met me in my pain. He's assured me that he is a fellow sufferer and pointed my eyes from the cross to the empty tomb to the future he promises in Revelation where all will be as it should be and pain and suffering will be replaced with eternal joy. But if I'm not careful, I don't let God touch my everyday pain, my frustration and brokenness, that leaks out of me. He's there when I really need him in the big moments, but he's also there in the small ones. And God wants to meet me and you every day, all the time. But we too easily ignore his presence and miss the chance to rest in his love and grow beyond the frustration that we experience into the peace, patience, and contentment that is possible with Jesus. And the truth is, we're not going to suddenly find ourselves more peaceful or patient or content by willing ourselves to get better. I can't just tell myself to be content or feel better. I have to lean into God and let him produce that fruit in my life. Just like Dave encouraged us to cultivate joy last week, we need to turn to God in these everyday annoyances, experiencing his gospel of grace, even in the search for keys, in the frustration with technology that is supposed to make our our lives easier, for some reason not working, in the annoyance with bad drivers and burned dinner and whining children. God is there ready to meet us and to give us grace. 
Warren tells us, I need to cultivate the practice of meeting Christ in these small moments of grief, frustration, and anger, of encountering Christ's death and resurrection, this big story of brokenness and redemption in a small, gray, stir-crazy Tuesday morning. Because that's what our lives look like every day. In the face of my brokenness, my impatience, my frustration with myself, with my keys for losing themselves or for my lack of focus or absent-mindedness, I can respond with condemnation, justification, or repentance. Condemnation says, how stupid and careless can I be? I lost my keys again. What an idiot I am. Justification says, everyone loses things. It's not that big a deal. It doesn't reflect on my life or my busyness or my thoughtlessness in any significant way. Repentance says, my frustration at myself and my foolishness in response to my stress and a hurried and harried life is something that reveals the truth of who I am under pressure. I am broken. It pulls away the illusion of control and that I have things together and reveals that I am often the chief of all sinners, as Paul tells us. When I choose repentance, I'm honest about my brokenness. And I embrace the forgiveness that God offers us in Christ. Every day I confess and I'm forgiven. And it becomes a part of my daily rhythm, my liturgy throughout the day. And it both acknowledges reality and embraces who God says I am in Jesus. Loved, clean, forgiven. And without it, without that repentance, without that forgiveness, I continue to try and earn love, to cover over my mess and strive for recognition and success. Instead, I need to face my daily frustrations with an honest admission of my problems, a desire to walk away from my brokenness into the healing of Jesus, and to choose again to live the life that Jesus offers, forgiven, loved, brand new. The Bible encourages us to remember the faithful love of God never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So when the interruptions come, when the frantic search for the lost item hits, begin to notice this moment for what it is. A chance to revel in God's love, to confess and receive forgiveness, And trust again that you don't have to be perfect because Jesus was perfect for you. And his sacrifice means that you can accept his gift of grace and learn to live from the one who mastered life. Now, it might seem like I should pray here. But we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to end in a different way. We're going to take a moment to talk to God privately about anything that we need to get off our chest, to be honest about our brokenness and ask him for the forgiveness that is available through Jesus. Then we're going to practice it together as a community because we don't get together every week because we have everything figured out, but because we need God and Jesus has changed us and made us new in his grace. So we're going to read a confession together that will be on the screen. And then I'll declare the truth over us that we're forgiven in Christ. And when we do this together, 
we remind ourselves of reality and we practice the life we are invited to live by Jesus as a community. Broken but made beautiful. Sinners made sons and daughters adopted by our Heavenly Father and forgiven because of Jesus' sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection. Forgiveness is from God. But we still need to be reminded of the truth of it. In the face of the voices that tell us that we're not enough, that condemn us, it is helpful to hear in a voice that is louder and realer declare the truth of God over us. Warren explains it in this way. Unkind and condemning thoughts tell me that God's love is distant, cold, or irrelevant, that I must prove myself to God and other people that I am orphaned and unlovable, that God is tapping his toe, impatient with me, ready to walk out on me. These thoughts are loud enough that I need a human voice telling me that they are lies. I need to hear someone who knows me say that there is grace enough for me, that Christ's work is on my behalf, even as I'm on my knees confessing that I've blown it again this week. We may confess quietly, even silently, but we are reminded of our forgiveness out loud with standing and shouting, and we need to be sure to hear it. So before I pray to close this section of our service, we'll privately confess and talk to God silently, in case that wasn't clear. Then we'll confess as a community publicly, verbally, and I'll declare the truth of God's forgiveness over us all. And practicing it together will encourage us to practice this daily in response to the small moments of sinfulness we experience. When we practice it in the small ways, we'll be more likely to do it in the big ones too. And we'll begin to embrace more and more our identity as fortunate and forgiven children of God. Grace can become more than a footnote or theological idea, but an everyday occurrence and reality for us. As we ask for forgiveness, we get better at extending it to others. As we receive grace, we more readily offer it and become not just marked by grace, but people of grace, people of the cross who have been forgiven again and again. And we begin to live more and more in the light of that forgiveness and grace. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to start with private confession. So let's just take a couple minutes to talk to God privately about whatever he's laid on your heart. Now join me together reading. Most merciful God, We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of of your name. Almighty God, have mercy on you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, 
loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.